With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It is July 27th. We're recording this on the afternoon of the 27th. Uh, Robert Mays is joining the podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's really not going to be much else because Robert Mays is all you need. So let's rock. How are you? This is one of our last podcasts apart, and I'm. There's a little bit of nervousness because absence it makes the heart grow fonder. Mm-hmm. I hope that our relationship, you know, that the chemistry has stayed when when we're back in the studio together. We'll see it. We'll see, man. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> I did get to see. I've gotten to see Austin a couple times since everything, you know, uh, supposedly slowed down. I got to see Neil a couple times. I still haven't seen you. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of what's the last thing I had. I think I wore, I, I haven't worn jeans longer than I haven't seen you, but, <laughs> but it, it's, it's still like time scales are humongous here. It's going to be fun. Um, we hope everyone is staying safe. Uh, there's obviously the news that kind of just came out and that's the only thing I want to hit on before we get to Robert Mays baseball in the most predictable way possible has managed to just shit themselves uh was it like 15 marlins players get coronavirus not surprising in the slightest that that's the team that that's the sport that it happens i am going to take the optimistic side and i'm going to say this helps the nfl because what we need is to shine a light on how just taking some simple precautions but doing so faithfully can get us through a season being an idiot one time can ruin everything yeah, I mean, I it's been a it's been a roller coaster. I think last week was mostly positive on the league front. Obviously, Monday this week was hit us with a ton of bricks. I will say, you know, if the MLB sort of, I mean, this is this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's a wake up call for the NFL, or it's a wake up call for the NFL. It depends upon how they want to sort of <laughs> use it. Um, if it, you know, I think the players have a lot to lose here. Um, but like I said last week. It's. I feel somewhat bad when I'm like, okay, like I'm gonna depend upon the the responsibility of players who are economically, you know, re, you know, dependent on playing a game during a, you know a pandemic that, while isn't as deadly as we thought initially, is still pretty deadly. And and deadly to it's also just like deadly to the way we want to live our lives, and that you know that's the that's the thing. It's like. It just, I don't know. I, I, now I'll be rambling, but I've made my point. I am yeah. remaining optimistic. Glass half full, um, like the uh, opening scene of Wedding Crashers. Um, that, all right. That's right, it is half full. Did you see that? Would you take a look at that? Uh, all right, we've got Robert Mays uh, of The Ringer. This was an awesome, he was very generous with his time, spent like an hour with us. Um, and uh, he dropped a lot of really interesting nuggets, talked about um, everything from Ryan Tannehill to the Chicago Bears to smoke uh, to meats. The Jamal to smoke meats to the Jamal Adams trade um, even gives you a recommendation for a great restaurant in Chicago. So when you can travel again, you'll know where to go. Robert Mays, here it is. All righty, joining us, uh, it's been a long time coming. Robert Mays from The Ringer. Uh, we've been trying to get you on for a while ever since um, uh, in Indianapolis at the Combine, which feels like like a million years ago. 
Steve Palazzolo. Years ago. A different lifetime ago. <laughs> Literally a different world. Steve Palazzolo puts you through just this humiliating exercise uh, on stage in front of other human beings. And so we have to make up for it and have like a real football conversation. So I'm glad we're finally making it happen. That almost destroyed all the goodwill you guys could possibly have with me. I almost just said to F off because there was no way I was ever coming back after that stunt you all pulled. I, the, the, so the story behind this, if, for people that are completely lost, is that Steve, we were doing this kind of live show in Indianapolis, and Steve was uh, going to pitch himself as a GM candidate to another GM, uh, like an actual GM. No, no actual GM wanted to do it. So he went to Mike Tannenbaum next. Mike Tannenbaum stood him up. And then it was like, well, I have to do this bit. I prepared this ridiculous, you know, segment. Let's just put it on poor Robert Mays. And I was like, ah. It was terrible. I really didn't appreciate it. The, the, the worst part about it was, like, the worst inside jokes are absolutely dreadful if, like, if you're trying to build something, right? So, like, we're They don't make our, good comedy. We're... we're <laughs> Like, maybe our podcast after two and a half years, yeah, there's a couple inside jokes you could tell. But, like, we're this is the first time we had a live show at the Combine, and we lead into it with some Bigfoot dude trying to, like, pretend to pitch himself to Rude. a fake GM while he's sporting a jerry curl. It just, like, doesn't make a whole lot of, like, sense to do. And, of uh, course, poor you. Hopefully, I got on the show, and I just started talking to Robert, um, and I thought that that like got the thing on track at least a little bit. It it did because shockingly, uh, Robert, you're you're better at talking about football than uh, hearing GM pitches. Listen, I'm from Chicago, man. We have this whole you know second city improv just culture that we live here, and I was in the yes and mode. Whatever was going down, I was going <laughs> to roll with it and just try not to derail it. And I think that I succeeded. I feel pretty good about it. You did. You survived. Um, you you mentioned Chicago, and I. We talk about football, but I also just, like, want to talk about food the whole time. It works for me. Yeah, and so I wanted to start off. We usually do some icebreakers. I really just want to know, what have you been cooking? What have you been eating during the quarantine that has helped you get through the pandemic? I have gotten – I got a smoker recently. So yesterday I had some pork belly out in the afternoon, and I currently, as we're talking right now, have a 14-pound brisket on the smoker, and I've been checking it all day. Oh. So it's been – it's a labor of love, and I just – I don't know how much people know about smoking meat. It's one of those things that's so esoteric, and you talk about it, it's so annoying. Becoming <laughs> one of those guys, I'm just horrified by the idea, but I'm not wrapping it in foil. I'm just letting it ride all the way through, which in brisket terms is like – it's a move. So I'm excited about it, and yeah, it's been great. I've been barbecuing, but I've also been trying to cook a little bit healthier – so essentially, I give myself one day a week, just let it rip, and that's when I've gone with the very terrible like pork and beef and all of the fixings and sides. One day a week, I just let myself go. And you're doing that on a Monday? So the thing is, I was going to do the brisket yesterday, but they couldn't deliver it. It was a whole big thing, so I had to push it back to Monday. Yesterday was supposed to be brisket day, okay. but I had to push it back. So now this week going to be two weeks. I already worked out, though. We're good. I got a bike. And I use wow. it every day just because I have to if I'm going to eat like this. So I found a balance that works for me. We're all right. You and Eric. Eric got a bike, too. It's paying off for him. I have been doing the same thing that you're doing. And case in point, I ate half a peach cobbler and pint of ice cream last night. Um, and you were growing peaches peach tonight, and I'm pretty excited before, about it. Before you get on anybody else's level, George. Like, that's... I, I want to pa- do a quick power ranking of things most annoying to hear people talk about. It's probably being a vegan, CrossFit, and then smoking meats. I, I would smoking say- meats and CrossFit are in the same world. Those are <laughs> I, I definitely quadrant. the tone of those conversations is really Dude, similar. It's- and I don't want to become one of those people. And I can feel myself inching in that direction. Have you ever said to somebody, "quote That's too bad." Like, hey, George, you want to go to CrossFit with me? No, actually, I don't do CrossFit. Oh, that's too bad. Like, that's kind of like when you know that you've crossed, like, the barrier into, uh, I don't know. George, did we decide to do our, did we decide to do our, our segment this week, the douchebaggiest thing we did this week? <laughs> we might have we might have to at the end. It's like um, ordering Jamba Juice through DoorDash is my douchebaggiest thing this week. Oh, my God. That's horrible. <laughs> 
That's terrible. Oh, I, man. What was, uh, do you have anything douchier than, than spending all day tending to a brisket, Robert? No, not this week. Good for you. you know, it's, if I dug back a little bit through what's happened during all of quarantine, I'm sure I could get there. But this week, I don't think so. I how, spent, big, how, how big is everybody's douchebag jar during quarantine? <laughs> like, it's got to be just, like, you could make a stimulus out of, the, out of it. See, like, that's, the nice thing is my life is so self-contained now that I feel like I don't have to project the douchebaggery out into the world. I mean, for the oh. most part... I took a couple, last two weeks ago. I took the week off. I just wanted a break from doing nothing, and I literally just watched Top Chef all day. So I feel like I'm pretty much in this bubble where my douchebaggery doesn't affect other people as much. So I feel pretty good about it. I tip decently, but I, it's still not enough to, for somebody to come bring you Jamba Juice. To your no, house that's out it, in it's unacceptable Cincy. no matter what you're tipping. I, te- <laughs> I, I tend to be tipping a decent amount right now. I've been trying to do the right things, you know, supporting local places. And uh, I don't go out to eat really, but I've been trying to, you know, be conscientious about the ways I've spent my money. So hopefully I've done a decent job. I don't know. I'm sure I've strayed in the wrong direction plenty of times. Here, here might be my thing. So I've, I've been trying to do the same thing, tip generously, you know, all this stuff. And there is a place that I go to regularly that has these sweet potato catfish sliders that are amazing. Fantastic. Explain yourself. It's, it's a small, like, deep-fried piece of catfish, and the bun is like a sweet potato roll. Oh, man. And it's a place called the Dabney in D.C. It's awesome. But when you, go, when you go there, you can order as many as you want, and I usually get four to eight, you know, at the beginning and then at the end of the meal. They now will only let you get two. So I, I tried tipping extra and sending a message. It was like, hey, I've been he- coming here a bunch. I tipped you guys an extra 15%. Can I get like four more sliders? And they just, <laughs> they just ghosted me. So that, that went unfortunate. It did not go well for me. Um, Robert, I had one quick question before we get to the football. What is your favorite Chicago restaurant? Because I've had the pleasure of going to Chicago a couple times. It's a great food city. I'm curious what your favorite is. The restaurant I consistently get the most excited about eating at, I guess that's how I would frame it, is called Dusex. It's in Pilsen, which is okay. down south a little bit. Um, it, it's just like elevated pub food, essentially. They have mm-hmm. a foie gras cheese dip that's just unbelievable that you get as an appetizer. And they have a kind of a duck three ways entree. I love duck. And duck it's kind of fantastic. a duck three ways. So it's like a duck sausage. Uh, a duck breast and then like a duck leg confit and it's just really really good it's got like a mustard sauce that comes with it i just like that kind of hearty way of eating and it's that's my favorite version of it in the city there's so many good options how do you spell that uh, taking notes do sex is d-u-s-e-k-s that's that's the names are always a huge part of it the first place i ever went to in chicago millions of years ago was a place called the girl and the goat Oh, yeah, that's Stephanie Eisner's restaurant. Speaking of Top Chef, I've been there many times. She it's has an fantastic. empire. She's the best. It's fantastic. Okay, we're going to talk football you get the, now. Do you get the pork cheek? you got to get the, the, the face, you know, the pig face. I, I definitely got the pig face. I was with a yeah. guy who, and this is actually kind of similar to when Eric and I go out to eat. I was with a guy who hadn't tried as many of these things. And so I'm like, hey, we got to get this. We got to get this. We got to get this. He was like, are, we sh- are you sure? And I'm like, look, the place isn't – we didn't wait 45 minutes to sit on, like, the corner of a desk, like, by the bar just to not order the things on the menu, You buddy. go nuts at places like that. The yes. whole point is that if you have food left over, you take it home. I never want to walk out of a place like that and say, you know what? I wish I would have gotten that one more thing because who knows exactly. if you'll be back. I uh, – I'll admit I have not ever walked out of a restaurant with to-go goodies, but, you know, to each his own. Um, let, let's talk about the Jamal Adams trade because you wrote a, a really good piece about it. I was, when it happened, and I was like, Robert Bays is coming on. This is going to be excellent because it paralleled really nicely with the other kind of big trades for defensive players, Cleo Mack obviously being one of them. When you saw the trade happen, like what were some of your first reactions now having had a couple of days to think about it? What are some of your thoughts about what this says, what this means, whether it was a good trade, all those things? It's it's one of like a, one of those memes with like the Alonzo Morning gif where it's like you have an initial <laughs> reaction to it and it's like, God, that's a lot. But it's like, eh, I mean, I guess it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I think for both teams, it makes a lot of sense. And, and we can talk about this. And, you know, I know you guys are, you know, 
you guys have done a very good job of kind of looking at things through a certain lens where let's not get caught up in the emotions of this. Let's think about what the actual returns are on trades like this. Did they pay too much? And the answer is yes. Like they clearly gave up too much for a single player. Any non-quarterback probably shouldn't be going for that much, especially if you, if you have to give him a new contract. But if you consider the circumstances that the Seahawks have, where they're at compared to some of the other teams that have made deals like this, I understand it. I don't know if I would have done it, but I completely understand how you get to that point where John Schneider is sitting there and he's saying, you know what, yeah, this is worth it. We should do this. One of the things that I thought, you know, so like Eric talks about this a lot with the draft, which is you don't always have exact change. So I, I, this, this kind of thought of, okay, it costs this much to get what you wanted. Did you overpay a little bit? Sure. But if you underpay, you know, if you try and find exact change, you're never going to quite get there. And it's still this thing of, do I, am I going all in on Russell Wilson's prime by bringing Jamal Adams in? Or am I actually, am I hurting my chances at being consistently successful over the course of his prime? Because it's probably a lot longer than I might expect. And having those extra first-round picks is going to help me sustain, you know, the kind of balance I need to to let Russell Wilson take me over the top. So I, I am I am also torn. I agree that it's overpaying, um, but there's there's this difference, this dramatic difference between overpaying for a guy like Jamal Adams when your quarterback's Russell Wilson, and doing so when it's you know. Mitchell Trubisky. Well, and they're in, they're in such an interesting spot in the NFC, right? Because there's a legitimate need in that conference for a super team. In the AFC, you have Baltimore hmm. and you have Kansas City. And after that, it's kind of, you know, a few teams vying for that. In the NFC, you have the Niners, who are very good, but a lot of things might regress for them this year. The NFC North is a mess, as Robert knows. And the NFC East, Dallas, there's a lot of projecting for Dallas. And, yeah, in the NFC South, you know, you have a fading team in New Orleans, a, you know, a lot of projection in Tampa Bay. Like, if you're Seattle, you might have just put, you know, planted a flag and said, look, we're the third best team in the NFL. And there's a lot of value in that, you know, in, in the, and then the versatility. I mean, we, we wrote about this with, like, you need your players, your star players to elevate the weaker players around you. Adams, there's evidence that he does that. Brian Poole was a terrible nickel in Atlanta, he comes to the Jets, and he's very serviceable. I, you know, Marcus May as is, is well. You know, the, that defense was a top-five defense last year in yards per play. So I I don't like it long-term, but, like, at this point in time, like, what, what is, what's Seattle trying to do? They're trying to win a Super Bowl because that's really – that's the bar that they've been trying to achieve since 2015. So I think that that's a great point, and I, I think the way they use him kind of takes him outside of a traditional conversation about positional value because if you say a safety isn't worth this, it's kind of misrepresenting the argument because I feel like he does so many things that he transcends that label in a similar way to what Tyron Matthew can do. You know, yep. Matthew is better in coverage in the slot, things like that, mm-hmm. so he probably does things that align with what modern defenses need to do in a way that Adams might not. But I still think that just calling him a safety isn't quite right. And it's funny that both of you guys are talking about their ceiling as it relates to this trade. The thing that's more interesting to me is their floor without this (laughs) trade. The fact that you have Russell Wilson, and there's a very good chance that if he stays healthy, you're going to be a 9-10 to win team. That protects you in a certain way from the downside of a deal like this in a way that the Rams and the Bears are not because you don't have that level of quarterback play. That's why I support it on the Seahawks level, just because the worst-case scenario of losing those two first-round picks probably isn't that bad. Well, and you make a a great – like when you talk about Kansas City, right, why did Kansas City not win in 2018? They didn't win in 2018 because their corners couldn't cover anybody uh, and they had just too many weak parts. Ron Parker, Daniel Sorensen, the linebackers were all – and what Matthew did for that defense is he elevated the floor, right? He made Daniel Sorensen look like a competent player. He looked, he made Anthony Hitchens look like a competent player. And it was good enough for that defense to, to get them to achieve great things. Seattle doesn't need their defense to be awesome, even though they probably have top three players at their respective positions on you know the middle level and the back level. Like What they need is for Ugo Amade not to be like this this uh, sore thumb on third down against the Packers in the playoffs. What they need is whomever takes over for Quentin Dunbar because he's on the non-football injury list or whatever. I can't remember the exempt list. Like they just need him to be competent. Like Adams' ability, and I, I think 
one of the things they should be doing is sort of taking a page from the Patriots, but your, your base rush is three players. And then you use some combination of KJ Wright, Bruce, Bruce Irvin, I believe, um, you know, Adams to manufacture a pass rush. Your back seven isn't that bad. And you can almost in that in that division, you know, build a defense based upon sort of chess pieces the way that Belichick does. I don't know if they're going to, but they're kind of putting themselves in that position. Well, Dunbar, you know, Dunbar was great uh, last year, and that's a that's a piece that could potentially help elevate that coverage spot. This to me feels like a move where you go, you're you're the front officer of the Seahawks, and you go, you know what? We actually don't think the Niners are that good. That's what this move really felt like. It said to me, it's like, hey, if we make this move, we are the team to beat in this division. Do do you feel that way at all, Robert? I just think that their ceiling is that high, just because their quarterback is so good, and that's why they're so frustrating. They're just such a frustrating team in general. They're just a contradiction because Schneider <laughs> makes these wild swings on these trades. He's constantly trying to just find ways to exploit other teams and get better and turn over every rock. So they're super aggressive on that side of things. And everything about the way they're constructed and the way they play is ultra conservative. <laughs> it just doesn't compute together. And, and that's why it's hard for me to say because should the Seahawks be – one of the two or three best teams in the NFC based on the personnel they have? Absolutely. But it's just when you watch that team and you watch the way they approach their offense and everything else, they artificially lower their ceiling. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a version of them out there that absolutely is. I just don't have a ton of faith in their coaching staff to create a strategy that unleashes that version. It's, it's so, yeah. <laughs> the Seattle is like the, the maddening case because it's clear that it's clear that Carroll and company do a good job of motivating players, right? Like, and developing you know, there, them. There, there have always been there have always been these coaches that I thought like defied, you know, that. And like I always thought like Dennis Green was that way, where like he would just you know get a bunch of a few stars and then a bunch of ragtag players that would play better. And you know you can't argue with the results. You know, eleven and five, ten and six, one super, all that kind of stuff. Like they've overcome their own deficiencies, I think, through sort of these interpersonal things. But you're right. I mean, if they threw the ball on early downs ten percent more, I mean, this division could be a wrap by like October. But they, they, but who knows if they will? And it seems like they won't. They, they, they just won't. You know, they, <laughs> they will not. I, I can tell you that they won't. It, yeah. It's really interesting, and it's just one of those things that. You can see how it happens, right? Because they've had enough success that I'm sure that 60-whatever-year-old Pete Carroll, he may seem young, but he's still an old defensive-minded head coach. Mm -hmm. I'm sure in his mind he's thinking, it's clearly working. We're winning 10 games a year. And that's just not how any of this works. Just because you're winning 10 doesn't mean it's a justification of something when you could be winning 12. (laughs) Yeah. Part of me, like as a Niners fan, I'm just so excited to – feel the comfort of knowing they're going to run the ball on first and second down with reckless abandon as a football fan in general though it's sad because you don't get like Russell Wilson Russell Wilson isn't just a good quarterback he's he's a great quarterback and not being able to see him operate and maybe be as good as he possibly could be is kind of sad one of the things I'm, I'm curious about though with this move is how how the hell do you have a player in Jamal Adams go out of his way repeatedly to say, I don't want to be on this team and then have to give up two first round picks and a serviceable safety. But they've always done this. They traded, what did they trade for Percy Harvin? It was enormous. First round right? pick. It was yeah, first it was, yeah. Yeah. And then to a, to a Vikings team that clearly didn't like, they shut him down in the middle of a playoff run in 2012 and they still ended up getting a first round pick for him. They traded a, what was it a one and Mac was it Max Unger too for Jimmy Graham? That, that was like Jimmy Graham. Al- yeah, yeah. They've always overpaid for superstar. I mean, they gave up a two for Sheldon Richardson. Like they, they've always been this way. I, I feel like I feel like it's one of those where he just walks into the door and he's like, "Get her done," and and then they they oblige. I assume that Joe Douglas on the other end of the phone wasn't taking any less than that. Because if you're Joe Douglas in this situation, you have no incentive to get rid of Jamal Adams. Your team is bad. He's a really good player on a rookie contract. You don't have to trade him. A lot of this stuff dies down over time if you let it. And I think it would. Jamal Adams would have reported 
things would have been solved most likely in the long term if they hadn't addressed mm-hmm. it at all. It's, it reminds me in a way of the Larry May Tunsil situation, where even if you're rebuilding and you want resources, isn't Larry May Tunsil the kind of guy you want to build with? But at a certain point, if a team offers you two first-round picks, you can't say no. It would be irresponsible to say no, even if you think this is a guy that should be a building block of a team that's really just trying to figure out who it wants to be. And you, you bring up the Jets. Like, the Jets are a great – I think the Jets are in a really prime spot now, right? Because if Darnold doesn't work, they obviously have assets now. Yep. And they – you know, even if they don't finish with the league's worst record, they can move up to the first pick and take the quarterback they want. Yep. Or if they don't have a preference between one of the two guys, they can do essentially what they did in 2018, which is trade up to a, a spot where they're guaranteed one of the guys that they want. But if Darnold works – they're in a, 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 a tremendous spot as well, right? Because then they can use this capital to actually enhance the players around him, which has been really, ironically, the reason why he sucked many, in many ways is that they traded the farm to get him in the first place. No, I, it's unfortunate. I don't think you understand this. Thing. They, they, they can't, they're not good at drafting, so they'll, they'll ruin those picks, and therefore the trade is bad. I, I don't know if you've heard that yet, Eric. Maybe you've been under the The GM who's had one draft? Yeah. Yes. Well, and how and many the players haven't played yet? Like they just traded the top, a top a top ten player who got more in return. Like they Jamal Adams is a draft Mark and Marcus May in the same draft that both ended up being pretty good football players for them. Um, I, Robert, I want to uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about the season. God willing, it happens as a whole. Who are some of the teams and or maybe even players that you've been thinking about that you're really excited to watch? Maybe more so than just anyone else out there. And, and if you want to start with the Titans, I'm fine with that. The Titans, I mean, I, I'm interested in the Titans. I wrote about the Titans a couple weeks ago. I just, I'm fascinated by this idea of how you stave off offensive regression and what needs to happen for you to maintain, not the pace that you were at when it's historic, but something close to it. How do you kind mm-hmm. of get better in other areas when you know you're going to fall back in some? And I think that the Ravens are interesting in that regard, but with the Titans they're not going to be as good as they were down the stretch last year. It's just based on math and history. But what kind of stuff do you need to do to ensure that you're getting enough easy throws to make Ryan Tannehill a quarterback that maybe lives up to that contract, even if he's not the guy he was over the second half of last season? That type of stuff is fascinating to me because I think that we can all agree that for the most part, outside of, I don't know, three quarterbacks, four quarterbacks, Every other guy in the league needs some sort of support system to make him great. And how you fine-tune that support system and keep it going over time as guys figure you out and you fall back just to a baseline level, that sort of stuff is always interesting to me. So what the Titans look like the second go-around, how they try to find a change-up to that fastball they found last year, that is a story to me. I'm excited about watching that. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that might help them is the fact that they are basically what they're 28th in, in terms of our strength of schedule. Now the Colts in their division are 31st, and the Ravens, who you talked about, are 32nd. Like they're going to get opportunity. They're, they're going to have an opportunity to be good um, just based upon who they don't face. And, and then there's so then the question: Do they finish second in their division, which is kind of a nice break for them? Um, the, the, the interesting thing to ask is, so last season, what was it? Greg Joseph had one field goal attempt in, like, the last, like, what, eight or nine games? <laughs> yeah, like, totally the regression obviously comes from Tannehill and, you know, the play-action stuff. He's not going to average 13 yards per attempt on play-action. Uh, Red Henry's, zone, they were crazy good. Exactly. So I'm thinking, okay, what are, the, what are the hacks from a coaching standpoint that'll probably work? And it's probably just focusing on things like the red zone, right? And they were getting so many chunk plays offensively that many times they didn't have to convert in the red zone. But maybe now the guy gets tackled at, you know, A.J. Brown gets tackled at the seven, and now you need a, you know, a, a play in the red zone. To me, I think that's where it comes in. Defensively, they just need to get a pass rush, right? Which, which sort of yeah. brings us to the clown you know, discussion where you're la- they're fine in the secondary. I think they got a lot of talent there, frankly. Um, and, you know, they're okay at linebacker, but they can't rush the passer to save their life. I mean, Vic Beasley was the bet they made, so we'll see how that works out. I think that trading him for Jarrell Casey, to me, is not a huge upgrade. They're essentially using the same amount of money on an edge rather than somebody on the interior, and I'm not sure that they get a lot more because of that. Is there there any chance that that Tannehill was just, like, it was just a complete mirage? Because... 
And going back yes. and watching <laughs> some of those plays, like, yeah, right, like, it wasn't just, you mentioned the supporting cast, and I think everyone with the Titans goes, okay, it was Derrick Henry, it was A.J. Brown, and it was the scheme that, um, that the new offensive coordinator, whose name is now escaping me, Art Smith, yes. Yeah. Um, the wonderful story they tell about how successful his dad is, but his dad didn't give him anything, and just a, you know, a true, a, a true, true grinder story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and that was the reason, you know, that great supporting cast was the reason Tannehill was great. But then you go watch these, these throws that he makes, and it's like, no, no, th- these are, this is like Russell Wilson dropping, you know, passes outside the numbers 25 yards downfield into a bucket. Like, he was on one. And it reminds me, honestly, of, of that, like, Tennessee Titans Billy Folek stretch where he was just, <laughs> Drew you know, in fuego, yeah. Gave all um, those white wide receivers hope. But, oh, yeah. but he the, the could. comparison that I made is Case Keenum in 2017. I hmm. think that is the closest comparison because the, I felt the same way, George. I went back and I watched a lot of those completions before I wrote about them. And when you go into that sort of study, you expect a certain thing. You're just like, oh, I'm sure I'll see a lot of lucky stuff, a lot of after-catch yep. things, a lot of wide-open play-action throws. And I went back and watched. I was like, God damn, he was really good. He was just yeah. really good. And there are some moments where his numbers under pressure were crazy. I mean, just absolutely nuts. And there are a lot of plays where he's getting out of stuff, and there was a long touchdown to Tajay Sharp. I can't remember the game where he just wiggled out of pressure, dumped it off, and Sharp took it 40 yards. From New Orleans. There's the New Orleans. That's, yeah, that sort of stuff is not sustainable. That's going to come back to, back to earth. I mean, under pressure stats, we know this. They don't carry over. You know, Keenum, again, is the perfect example. It's just not something that's a skill necessarily, especially when you consider how bad Ryan Tannehill was in that area recently but the stuff that does carry over yak production in offenses is consistent Kyle Shanahan consistently has the best ones in the league the Titans last year had I believe two of the top three guys in yak above expectation per play in AJ Brown and John Smith there might be a scenario where that's just something they do well and if that can carry over maybe you do kind of keep the training wheels on Tannehill that's the type of stuff I'm really interested in watching well, and are we open to the idea that he was actually on a decent path forward before he tore his ACL twice? Like, I, you know, and, and granted, I mean, not to this degree, but you look at, you know, there were some things that are bad last year that are probably going to regress or re- regress positively. Like, his, he took a sack on 10% of his dropbacks last year. Was He's more bad like at this, that, though. That's his But thing. it was more in, like, the 7% when he was in Miami. But you look... Like that, so, you look at like that's the pocket awareness you have when you've played wide receiver in college. Yeah, but I mean, okay, so but I, I'm thinking of this like is our prior on Tannehill maybe maybe too low given you know the circumstances he was in in Miami. In yeah, Adam Gase, who everyone has gone from thinking was great to yeah, is well, 2016 disastrous. he took a Miami team. You know, he averaged he was 67 percent completion, 7.7 yards per attempt. He was eight and five with them. He took him to the playoffs, despite the fact that that team like was outscored by their opponents by 17 points. Like it wasn't a great team, and he was playing with Adam Gaze. Tears his ACL one year, tears his ACL the other. Is replaced by Jay Cutler, who had one of the worst seasons in the NFL in in 17 as the starter. Hey, hey, for Gaze. <laughs> and then in, in 18, his his grade wasn't good. His numbers were like. His numbers were okay. They weren't great. Like, are we are we discounting the fact that we're talking about a top ten pick who had who had started a number of games before, who was sort of on the ascent in his career? And yes, this was a a, tight, a huge jump. But maybe the regression is down to something like a guy who's seven point seven yards per pass attempt, as opposed to like six point seven yards per pass That's, attempt. That's Robert. If you can't tell that glass half full. Uh, monologue was uh, because our simulations like the Titans. <laughs> so I, the reason that I think that they have a chance or he has a chance to be better than he's been, but maybe not as good as he was last year, is I think that, again, the yak stuff I believe in, I think the overall structure of the offense has a chance to kind of keep him propped up. And the thing that I like the most is that we, I've seen this with a couple different quarterbacks recently. When you change the offense stylistically and make them more aggressive just by virtue of design, I think Mm -hmm. good things tend to happen. And if you look at what the Titans did with play action, depth of throws, just that style of offense they're playing, it's drastically different than it was in Miami. He was consistently near the bottom of the league in air yards per attempt with the Mm -hmm. Dolphins. He was near the top last year. That, to me, is a substantive change. And Matthew Stafford, to me, last year was the same way. I was just about to say. 
I love that stuff. If you're really going to let a guy just have it, let him let it rip, really create just it, this aggressive mindset by virtue of the type of offense that you're playing, that's when I think you can see a different sort of quarterback over a sustained period of time. And that's why I believe in what the Titans can do. Yeah, the, the Lions are such a good example, man. I am. That's a team that I think both Eric and I are massively more excited about than just about anyone outside of Detroit I can't is. wait to watch them. I can't I, wait to watch their offense. It's such I, a weird feeling. I, I, I mean, they had two really fun to watch receivers. Um, Matt Stafford has gone from a guy that I never really, like, I didn't feel any sort of type of way for it. And now I, like, really want to see him do well. I feel like everyone hates totally on the guy. Agree. It's so funny. He's, I feel the exact same way. He's well, got a little Jay they Cutler. They play football to in him. such a... They play football in such a fun way, right? And, and yeah. you know, I there's nothing better, I think, than like a – I mean, you you know it, Robert, being a, a Bears fan. You know, there's nothing better than a, a wide receiver <laughs> that can go up and get a football, right? I mean – I'll see you guys later. This is it. Man. You guys have one <laughs> shot. I'm done. Uh, I, I was going to bring the Bears up next, but I don't uh, – Great, I'll, I'll great. We can do that. it. I'm ready. The, I'm ready. Bears, I'm so Bears, dead inside. Do you think I care? The Bears are franchise You can't where, hurt me. They, okay. They've, okay. They've never Agreed. not had a Robinson make make up for bad quarterbacks. Marcus in the late '90s, and then of course uh, Allen here with uh, Bortles. Uh, uh, agree or disagree with this statement? The Bears are in the worst situation of any franchise in the NFL right now. I think that might be true. I I, I don't. I wrote. I can't believe when it was. Time has no meaning anymore. But sometime <laughs> earlier this spring, I wrote that there's just no good outcome. What is the good outcome for the 2020 Bears if the season happens? Because no matter what goes down, let's say they win 12 games, Nick Foles is great, everything clicks offensively, they're a top-five yeah. defense. Let's say that happens. Nick Foles can probably opt out of his deal. We don't know all of the specifics of that, but that's possible. And then he's just gone, You don't have, and then you're, just, you're starting over again. And yep. The only good scenario for this is if Trubisky wins the job and he ends up becoming a really good quarterback, and I truly believe that ship has sailed. So if we're working in the Nick Foles kind of collection of outcomes, I just don't see how there's a good one. It, you, it's really a, just a middle ground season, that's, and it's hard to find a way out. Right. I mean, there, there has been some precedent for this, but you have to almost go back to like Drew Brees, right, when the, he had fallen out of favor in San Diego – they, they draft Philip Rivers, and he, you know, and, and then he's, and then you got, you know, a, a, a decent, um, you know, predicament on your hands. But it, it's not, you know, not that frequent. I think, don't you think that, that there's there's a, a decent chance that the NFC North is bad enough where the Bears, you know, improve by a game or two, go like nine and seven, and they win that division, and maybe it's enough to keep Pace and uh, Nagy around, but you know, sort of under the stipulation that look like we just got to move on from these quarterbacks, right? Like, is, is that a positive thing? Or because there's no draft capital to do anything with it, it's still well, sort of like... That, like, like that's you guys the, sign that's the whole Prescott. point, though. That, that, but that's the point, is you... And I think this is getting back to our, what we were talking about earlier, is when you make a move to send all of this capital for a star player, and it's not a quarterback, if you don't have a quarterback that makes your floor eight, nine wins... All of a sudden, your floor is four or five wins and disaster because you can't replenish your your cupboards at all. And that's I I, I agree with you, Robert. I, I think they are in in probably the worst situation in the NFL. And I think it honestly goes There's back no to it, I think it goes back to the Mac trade. Honestly, I would make the Mac trade again based on you the would. information I had at the time. I would make it again. And you and I have always differed on this, and I completely understand where you're coming from. And I think you're probably right. I mean, I think even now, even in the moment, I know you had your doubts about it. I was just kind of seeing everything through blue and orange colored glasses a little bit and got <laughs> sucked into it. But even now, I think based on what I, the information at the time, he's such a rare player. I mean, he's legitimately at his best, a top 10 player in the NFL. And I just don't think those guys are available. I would do it again. But you're right. There's just no way to replenish your roster. And they have the problem. Here's the thing. If it was just the Mac trade, if that's the only thing they did in terms of getting rid of draft capital, I think you survive. The mm. problem is when you compound that with the other decisions that they've made. A stray second here to go get Anthony Miller, a stray third right. here to go get David Montgomery. When you're constantly 
betting on yourself as a drafter when you have no drafting ability that's any better <laughs> than any other GM, you're going to run into problems. And I think that is the issue. I'd still make the trade. I just feel like a lot of the decisions they've made outside of that have created other problems. M- Mitchell Schwartz called him the best pass rusher in the league. Um, and it wasn't, he didn't really hesitate there. So I, I think you're, you're on to something, which is the draft, the drafter's best ability is to accumulate op- opportunity. Right, and that's how you show yourself to be a good drafter because people just go and remember the hits. So you give yourself more chances to get these hits. Feel, God, what a great GM! But if you only give yourself a, a couple of selections in a draft, you're in a position where I think Ryan Pace is right now, where it will look really, really bad. Um, let's talk about the the, the Ravens real quick because you mentioned teams that you know. How do you stave off offensive regression? And the Ravens were the only team in the NFL who ran fewer than 100 plays when they were behind in the first half. I think it's the only team that's done that in the past five years. They were all against Lamar- the Titans in the playoffs. <laughs> Lamar Jackson, you talked about this with Tannehill, Lamar Jackson was our highest graded player under pressure. I mean, he was amazing. So how do the Ravens, in your mind, stave off regression on the offensive side of the ball? It's a really good question, and I don't know the answer. I think that a little bit more Marquise Brown, just the way that it changes the structure of defenses, I think if they can tap into their speed in a vertical way, in a way they did not last season consistently, that could add an element to what they do. I'm really curious what the running game looks like because that's why I understand the Dobbins pick. Even though the value of it isn't necessarily there based on when they took him, I think if you're looking at all the factors involved, you know you lose Yonda. You know that you're going to have a new offensive personnel and it's going to be a weird season. I think having a back with a little bit more talent that can create on his own outside of the structure of the offense could be a way to maintain some efficiency in the running game you wouldn't have had otherwise. Because you How? can't bet on the infrastructure the way you could have before. Well, and and the, the thing that running backs might be able to do, and again, I, I'm skeptical of this, but when you look at you know the, the yards before contact that the Ravens elicit, it's higher than other teams. And it's because of Lamar. It's because of their blocking and things like that. When you don't have as – their passing game isn't all that explosive, right? It's a lot of – you know, unless Lamar runs with it. Like, so if you do – you need to create explosive plays in other parts of the game. And even though this isn't particularly stable, I do think that there are probably – there's something to the idea, okay, I need a running back that when the, the play gives them 15 yards, gives me 70. I That might be the way that they think about it, you know, in, in – in lieu of him being all that accurate outside the numbers uh, and producing big plays that way. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that works. How dare you besmirch you... Gus Edwards' good name? Gus is, Gus is amazing. I, I draft Gus in every best ball. I, when you're, I, I totally understand the argument that when you're thinking about running backs in the Ravens, the way to, you know, a lot of people have kind of come back to the idea that, well, why would you draft a running back when you can plug anyone into that system and they're going to be successful? And I think that drafting a running back is proof that you can't put too much faith in the system because the system at some point, the parts of it can break down a little bit. And I think that's where losing Yonda, understanding that it's not going to be this just monster efficiency machine that it was last year and kind of planning for that with a little bit better talent. I understand that thinking. I understand the other side of it too, but I get how they got there. Yeah, well, why wouldn't you draft a guard then? Because if you don't think there's a guard there that makes yeah. sense, I mean, if it's you don't draft the guard just to do it, I think you draft the best, the guy you think is going to give you the best rushing offense in that moment. And I can understand how you think it's running back. Well, and the, the other top. thing with the Ravens that was interesting in their draft, um, I, I thought that they got great value in a number of places. Um, as far as you know, Devin Duvernay was a good player. I think they got James Prochet, if I'm not mistaken. Ben Bredelson was a good pick. And, like, they had a lot of picks. And at some level, like, the market just wasn't there. Like, there wasn't a trade down until, what, 13? And I know that the Ravens fleece the Chargers. Sorry, the, the Patriots fleece the Chargers and all that kind of stuff. But at some point, like, this might not have been the draft for them to accumulate a bunch. And there weren't a team. Like, they're the one team in the NFL where I don't immediately say, hey, corner's a need. Like, every other team in the league needs a corner somewhere. And they have, you know, Brandon Carr has started every single NFL game since 2008. Marcus Peters is an awesome football player. Marlon Humphrey is good at everything. 
Um, you know, is Jimmy Smith still on the team? I can't remember if he's still on the team or not. But, like, they, they're not, like, necessarily a team where I look around and say, other than receiver, which may be their biggest whiff, was waiting until round three to go there. But I, I think that their decisions are more defensible from the running back perspective just because – it was, a, it was a year where trading down was not going to be as easy, and, um, you know, they're not a team with a ton of needs. Yeah, I don't what, have an um, issue with it. What, what other teams, real, kind of quickly, like a list of maybe a few that, you, that maybe we haven't thought or talked enough about that um, maybe they're going to do something Ravens-esque? And this is kind of another way of asking, like, is there anything that you feel might be the story of this year just like the Ravens were the story of last year, and, and obviously the Chiefs end up winning. But the, the Ravens throughout the season were such a big story and what they did offensively. Um, any teams that you think might be that this year? This might be recency bias and just kind of me following the breadcrumbs a little bit too much, but I think that Kyler Murray and being in year two and what we've seen with other year two quarterbacks over the last couple of years, I'm just excited to see what kind of jump he can make. You know, he's the guy that I feel like could be, if we're just watching the body of work, the most different quarterback this year compared to what he was last year in a good way. Other teams, just offenses, I'm excited to watch, and I just don't know what they're going to look like. Dallas, I mean, I just have no idea with the players they have, the talent that they have, what they're going to look like just based on the scheme, how they approach things, because I tend to believe that the version of the Cowboys offense we saw last year, which was very good but still had way too many of their old bad habits and traits – had a lot of Jason Garrett's fingerprints mm-hmm. on it. I want to see what they can look like when Kellen Moore has more just free reign and it's his show, even if Mike McCarthy has some input. So what that offense looks like structurally is one of the things I'm most interested in. The, the um, hey, it's fourth and five. Let's, uh, let's isolate Zeke Elliott and get him outside the numbers. Um, <laughs> that's Eric probably Hendricks having a career <laughs> season, like... It is. Uh, I can't even tell you when you go back and watch their tape how many times a game you have three receivers that don't move before the snap. Just static right where they lined up is where the play starts and all of them run a six-yard stop route. All of them. It it is just Was it Jonathan? I think it was like Jonathan Bales wrote in a book or something. He was saying like the difference between Jason Garrett and – Sean Payton was in the 2000 NFL season. Jason Garrett was sitting on the sideline as the Giants backup quarterback and Sean Payton was calling the plays. And it's just like <laughs> the, the fact that Garrett played for so long on, on actual good teams might have like stunted his growth as a thinker in the NFL. I always think that that's sort of an interesting uh, proposition, but you watch their games and like special teams are terrible. They're drop like they just they were like the mark of a poorly coached team almost like drops they were led to, you know Dak no one in the league had more of their passes dropped dropped than Dak it was just I think like just even getting back to like average as far as like the fundamentals of football might like do wonders for Dallas. There's, I just think um, they have so much talent in, in watching their. I just want to watch a coaching staff on in that franchise put their guys in positions to succeed because the guys are good enough. Where if you just do that. The returns are going to be there. Yeah. When no, you it, see it, games where they're just outrageously good, too. And, like, they put it all together. Yeah, I mean, whether they beat the Rams by, like, three touchdowns. It was, they had these games where they were just, you know, pulling the pants down of all these, you know, actually decent teams. And then now, you know, but then they go ahead and they lose to the Jets. And it's like, where is this coming from? That was a bizarre game. Just a really strange game. I am uh, – I'm so here for – the Mike McCarthy redemption tour. He came and visited our Cincinnati offices and got a chance to like sit down and talk to him. And he pushed back on some of the things that, you know, we were telling him about the run game, for example, and, you know, value of players, but he was just so hungry to learn about stuff. And um, it was just a really cool guy. And the way that it ended in green Bay, like I, I'm fully rooting for McCarthy to have this, you know, th- this is my season, Aaron Rodgers. like, listen, buddy, this is how you win football games. This is how you innovate offensively. The Kyler thing is so fascinating because he has the athletic, like Lamar Jackson is athleticism is off the charts, right? But Kyler Murray isn't that far behind. I mean, not might not be as shifty as Lamar, but when you think about best athletes to play quarterback, he's up there and his throwing ceiling, you know, is higher, right? His floor is higher, you know? So the potential that we're sitting here going, okay, yeah, we thought Lamar's season was special, check out what Kyler Murray is doing with a guy that can finally get open on the outside, you know, it, 
would be yeah. would be fascinating. They also have like a bottom third of the league schedule, which is weird because they're in the AFC, NFC West, but like they actually kind of catch a break this year, which is big because I think that the thing that could really derail them is how poor defensively they they, they can be. Yeah. Um, and I know that they got you know Simmons, but it sounds like Vance Joseph, who was also on the the uh, combine show with you, uh, you know, he he's thinking only of. Um, you know, basically having uh, him play middle linebacker. But they also Chandler Jones, who's underrated, is one of the best players in the league. And then, you know, in the secondary, they really need Byron Murphy to kind of play well along with Buda Baker. But I just think we've seen so many times where I'll come into a season, I'll be like, yeah, their defense just isn't very good, and it doesn't end up mattering. You can catch that just with lightning in a bottle randomness yep. with defense, where even if you're the 18th best defense in the league, that can still be a 10-win team. I mean, I feel absolutely like we could come away from this season thinking that Kyler is the second most exciting, whatever, you know, just talented quarterback in the NFL as a thrower after Mahomes. I think his throwing upside has that sort of ceiling where any single throw on the field is available to him. And there just aren't many guys you can say that about. Yeah. I I love what you said there because that was the articulate, nuanced way of talking about defense not mattering as much and that's why people like you and they think I'm an asshole because I say defense doesn't matter and you put it very well which is it's catching lightning in a bottle if you are banking on a defense being elite or continuing to be really good you're putting your eggs in the wrong basket Uh, but I I agree with you there I I wanted we don't have a ton of time for this but I just kind of wanted to pump your tires a little bit I went back and read a bunch of your great pieces on the ringer and I read the, uh, the piece on The Last Dance. The Last Dance had, and I sh- everyone should go check it out, because it was about how it brought back some really cool memories uh, from your childhood. And I had that exact same experience, um, not the exact same experience that you told, but just like connecting back to when I was a little kid. I remember where I was watching all of those you know, indelible moments. I remember... You know, writing down Bob Costas's uh, you know final few lines in that game in Game Six, and I just thought it was fantastic. So I wanted to encourage people to go read that and all the other great work you do at the Ringer. But that was one of my favorites. So really good job by you on that. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. I think that early in quarantine, it was a really interesting time for all of us. And I feel like the Last Dance was its own version of a little time machine every single week. And I think that when you can't go anywhere else. You have to find ways to be transported in your own home. And I feel like my television was a way to travel through time every once in a while, whether it was The Last Dance every week. I was going back and watching a lot of old movies. I went back (laughs) and watched Seinfeld for a little bit. It was strange that I felt like I was kind of distancing myself from both people and current events. You know, I consumed enough to stay informed and up to date and everything else. But when I had idle time, I found myself, rather than seeking out new entertainment going back and finding comfort in old things and i think that the last dance was perfectly timed in that way yeah it really was i I won't tell you uh the show that i'm watching now that's not seinfeld not quite as critically acclaimed as seinfeld that's taking me back um to my childhood it may or may not have been on the cw when it aired but uh, neither (laughs) here nor there self-care is important right now george is out here watching the oc uh not the oc One, one tree hill more of a gossip girl guy Myself. Oh, hey. Wow. wow. Yeah. Great for you. The view isn't so bad it's there, an, I would say. It is an important time for self-care. you got to do what you need to do <laughs> to get yourself through the day. I support any and all choices right now. All right, lightning round here. A few questions to get you out of here. Who's your favorite offensive lineman in the NFL? Quentin Nelson. I mean, I know that's an easy answer, but I just – he combines everything you love to see. It's fundamentally perfect, but he also just has that nastiness. I mean, it's very hard for an offensive lineman, for so many things to fall in line, for that guy to become an actual star in his own right, and he is deservedly so. I mean, it's you don't see offensive linemen with highlights. Early Kalecio Sonali was like that a little bit, where he would just do some stuff, and it's like, oh, my God. But Nelson is doing that stuff consistently. I love watching him play. I, uh, I convinced our social media team a few months ago to run Quentin Nelson highlights where he's just blocking guys into the <laughs> earth and make the caption just different kinds of tea <laughs> because his nickname is Earl Grey. And uh, so we, we got to like Oolong, and I think that's where it stopped. Um, we, will pl- we will play uh, all 16 regular season games in 2020, uh, true or false? I'm still going with true. 
Uh, and maybe My I'm man. just maybe I, I'm, I'm sure that that's misguided and delusional. But everyone I've talked to, every single person I've talked to that has any stake in this whatsoever, and maybe that's the problem, has just said steadfastly that they think it's going to happen. And they know more than I do. And I, I'm just going on the conversations I'm having with people better positioned to get information than me. I, I, I think you're on the I think at least the, the most likely scenario is 16, even if it maybe not maybe isn't more than 50 percent. I think it's the most likely of all of it. You know, let's say four, eight, 12, 16. I think 16 is the most likely 16 weeks. Not every team actually puts players on the field for every game. I've stopped pretending like there are any yeah. certainties with any of this. It's, yeah. We'll figure it out as we go. Um, Lamar Jackson or Deshaun Watson for the rest of their careers. That's, that's a miserable question. And you have to put them on the Bears. Well, if you put them on the Bears, it's less than a miserable question, isn't it? I, th- I think I'd still pick Deshaun Watson. I just stylistically, I love the way that he plays. Just that there's so many throws he's made down the field, outside the numbers, where it just shouldn't even be possible, and he seems to consistently do it. I think when you just consider the success he's had with not a great situation – I mean, his numbers are unprecedented over the first three years of his career. It's like him and Dan Marino with a lot of the stuff mm-hmm. that he's done. I just have more faith for him to be a consistently really good quarterback for the next 10 years. What do you, what do you think about the Brett Favre comparison for him? I know he doesn't have a cannon for an arm, but it's sort of one of those guys that kind of keeps both teams in the game. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, I think that's I good. Like I also, it. you can't underrate the amount of plays he makes with his legs. And there's yeah. like, it's, it's not just running to run. He does a lot of running where it's it really just a dagger in a defense's heart where it's like third and six and you feel like it's over and then the drive keeps going. And I, just, I love that as an approach for a running quarterback. And, yeah, he, he just ticks a lot of boxes for me. I also there, just – I mean, people love Lamar, but Deshaun Watson has something about him. I mean, I wrote about this I think last year or the year before where there's just this galvanizing factor mm-hmm. and it goes back all the way to high school, college, whatever. Dudes love him. And, and the results are there. They're hard to argue with. I, I, he, I think he's my favorite player right now in the NFL. And I think back to, I think it was two years ago, it's a Sunday night game, so I remember it so well, Cowboys-Texans. And he got beat to a pulp. It, it was the game where every time they went back to the sideline, they were showing him, like, grabbing his ribs. Alan, Chris, Chris is just, go, he doesn't know how the guy's standing up to get back on the field. And the, the, they ended up winning because Jason Garrett decided to uh, <laughs> kick, a, kick a little field goal uh, on a fourth and inches. I, I remember. But you could not – it felt like they were going – they were just they, – that most people would have just he given up. He played poorly in that game. And, and he could not be killed. He's had he a number of games where he's played poorly and they've still – like remember Jacksonville week two last year? <laughs> like he's had a number of games – and granted, they're, they're, he gets blown out every once in a while. I think the real difference between him and Mahomes is Mahomes never plays poorly. And then, you know, Watson has stinkers every once in a while. But he's still, even like the Buffalo Thanks game in the playoffs, he brings them back, right? And, like, it's – I think it's Brett Favre-like in the sense that Favre was never a perfect player. And, in fact, Holmgren wanted to bench him early on. But, you know, gets the job done. Um, all right, last question. Get you out of here on this. Um, how are you going to find a way to ship me some brisket? Uh, oh, man. I, my buddy that made me one last year literally sent it home with me in vacuum-sealed packages. <laughs> so I don't have a vacuum sealer. I think I'm going to get a sous vide for my birthday. So maybe the next, the first one I make after I get the sous vide and the vacuum okay. sealer, maybe I'll, I'll make that happen and try to put it on some ice. I, I'll do whatever it takes. By the way, the sous vide is it's sensational. And you I put think it's my next there. kitchen gadget. I think it's. I think that's the move. I want to be poaching some salmon and oil stuff like that. I just there are things I want to be able to try. Again, I've watched way too much Top Chef. It's not been great. I <laughs> I can't tell you. I think I'm a Top Chef now. I brought my sous vide to DC to when I came to quarantine with my girlfriend just so I could be the wizard in the kitchen. It's too easy. It's awesome. You'll enjoy it. Top um, Chef has not made me a better cook, but it has changed my cooking energy a lot. <laughs> I feel like I have way better knife skills, way better with the pan. I'm just more frantic and stressed when I'm making food now, but I'm no better at it. That's the only thing that's changed. <laughs> it's like when you watch the PGA Tour for four straight days, and then all of a sudden you walk and be like, man, I feel great about this swing. That's exactly right. 
Uh, Robert Mays of The Ringer, uh, anything that you want to pimp, anything coming up soon uh, that you want to let us know about? Not, you know, check out the ringer.com, check out the ringer podcast network. You know, I feel like we're all kind of in this together, just feeling our way around in the dark and seeing how this is all going to go. So, you know, we've got a lot of great stuff. You know, we have a couple new people on our NFL staff, Kalen Jones, Nora Princiati, you know, we're all um, just, you know, I feel like it's a great team. We're doing good work. Please check out the fantasy show. You know, those guys are doing a great job. The Danny's Kelly and Heifetz. Yep. So, you know, we're doing our best at the ringer.com and, you know, we would love you guys to come check it out. They're fantastic. I check them out all the time. Robert Mays. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks, guys. All right. Special thanks to Robert Mays. That was fantastic. I had an absolute blast with him. I, we've each had the pleasure of having a couple conversations with him. And he is, there are a few people, when you talk to them about football, you walk away from the conversation and you go, man, that was a great football conversation. And we've had the opportunity to have a couple of those, Robert Mays, Mike Tirico, uh, just in the past couple of episodes. So that, that was a blast. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously where we talk about nerdy football stuff. But, you know, what's been really fun is, you know, people like Kevin Clark, people like Robert Mays, you know, Mike Tirico. Are you, are you saying they haven't earned their nerd card? He, Robert well, Mays. Well, they, they keep us honest dropped. about some of the things, That's right? They, like, I can't just sit here and be like, oh, running backs don't matter. End of conversation. We have a little, like, discussion about, you know, sort of maybe in this edge case, I'll concede a little bit. And I and I think that that's you know great. Obviously, you know he he said something I think profound at the end, which is that we're all in this together. I agree. I think, you know, there was obviously you know discussions today about you know the motivations behind how we talk about COVID nineteen. Um, I'm firmly of the belief that we're all in this together. And we will be in this together on Thursday. Thank you guys for tuning in. Peace out.